Well, we are going to be in uh, Mark chapter 12 today as we continue this series on the snapshots looking through the entire book of Mark. And uh, if you haven't figured it out yet, we're kind of doing a chapter a week. And so we are on schedule to finish Mark by the end of the year, by, by 19, I mean by 18, not 19. So we will finish it uh, by this year. But I don't know about you, I, I've enjoyed walking through this and getting a new kind of picture and understanding at a deeper and more intimate level of who Jesus is and why this man who lived 2,000 years ago still causing us to gather in a room like this today to still celebrate a season coming up of Christmas where we look at his birth and life. Uh, this fact that he lived so many years ago and still impacting so many parts of our lives today is just amazing. And we've been journeying through this book. We've been learning about who he was, his intentions, and we've been looking at his teachings. And now we, as we get to there, we're going to start focusing on the extraordinary story of the last few weeks of Jesus' life over these next few chapters. Uh, we're going to specifically look at the events that lead up to his arrest, trial, crucifixion, and eventual resurrections. And these moments are not just monumental in the lives of Jesus and his followers, but they have shaped the course of what would be known as a new era in human history. And I want to take you to, most of you know this, but just I want you to remember how we even get to where we are today. The events of this week immediately had impact on the Roman Empire, the Roman culture, the largest empire that, that had ever been really established up to that point. And it began to overtake the Roman Empire and become an influence in the Roman Empire. And through the Roman culture, it would then begin to shape what we know as Western thought. And it would get into our thought process. And it, it would make its way into European culture through the expansion and, pre and spread of Roman laws and the cultural norms that went along with it. And then even as the Roman Empire collapsed, the impact of this last week of Jesus' life continued to live on through what became the countless and often damaging intertwining of political and religious practices. It then spread throughout much of the known world as, as countries like Britain and France began a colonization strategy to where the name of Jesus was literally taken around the world and eventually landed in this new continent, this home that some of us call the United States, and we sit here today. And you know what we're doing today. We are now taking the same message that we originally see, received from a small town in the Middle East. And now we are sending missionaries back to the Middle East to tell the story. Again, it's this cycle of this story that literally never ends. It has been an amazing week. These last few weeks of Jesus' life are going to have amazing impact throughout all of history. But the truth is this. Everywhere that this message has gone, it has found enemies. And when we think about the primary enemies of the message of Jesus, we often think about these outside forces. Things like other religions or pagan doctrines that push back on Christianity. Maybe we think one of the biggest enemies is the immoral cultural practices that are shaping who we are and have been around for all eternity that push on Christianity. Or maybe the biggest enemy of all is maybe just the denial that God even exists or that Jesus was anything more than just some normal Jewish man who lived thousands of years ago. Those are all, the truth is, those are all enemies of God into the message of Jesus, and they've been around since the beginning of time. But the true and most damaging enemy of the kingdom of God has most often and primarily come from inside, not outside. And this is what Mark 12 focuses on and what we're going to focus on today as we look at this chapter. Because what Jesus does in Mark 12 
as he confronts his enemies here on earth one last time before he is arrested, tried, and then put to death. But again, these enemies aren't coming from other religions. They're not different cultures that have snuck into Jerusalem and are attacking Jesus at this moment. They're not even from those who deny that God even exists. These enemies are the entrenched, elevated, and esteemed religious leaders of his day. Jesus takes on the true threat to the kingdom of God, which is religion in the name of God, without a heart that is surrendered to God. That's what he's fighting against. In this one day that we're going to see, Jesus is going to push back hard on the enemy of the kingdom and the gospel that he's been presenting, which is religion without surrender. And too many times we can get caught up in the practice of the things of God without ever surrendering our life to God. And that's what happens here in chapter 12. He takes on repeatedly different groups of religious leaders that are each looking to levy different style attacks at him. Some come at him from the front. Others try to outflank him. Some try a sneak attack. But this day, of all the attacks, they're going to attack the person, the intentions, and the teachings of Jesus that he has been laying out in the last 11 chapters. So what I want us to do today is to look at each of these enemies, their tactics, and the attack, and how Jesus responds to them, and how easily we can fall into some of the same traps of becoming an enemy of the gospel if we're not careful. So we're going to look at three unique encounters, and then we're going to look at how this chapter's end by elevating a very unlikely hero, an ally of the gospel that we can learn from and model our life after. So let me give you a little background before we jump into Scripture to make sure everybody understands kind of where we are in this story. Uh, so if you, if you remember, if you've been here in the last couple of weeks, we are right in the middle in this story of Passover week. And so Passover, if you're not sure what it is, every Jew that was, had to make an annual pilgrimage to the temple to offer a sacrifice, it was commanded by law. They were there to celebrate a Passover meal. They would then stay and celebrate a Passover meal with family and friends as a reminder of God's provision for them as people, especially during the time of slavery in Egypt. This week in itself was a time of mourning, repentance, remembrance, and celebration. It was an incredible week in the life of the Jewish culture. When we pick it up in verse 12, this is the third day that Jesus and his disciples have come into Jerusalem. On the first day they came, it was Sunday, and they had made this triumphant entry into Jerusalem to the acclaim of the people all around the city. This great teacher, this healer, that man were many, this man that many were starting to call the Messiah came riding into town on a donkey, and he was fulfilling a very unique prophecy. And Jesus rides his donkey all the way to the temple, and when he gets to the temple, the crowds are cheering, everybody's calling his name, and he do, in that moment he doesn't incite a revolution. He doesn't call the crowd to action. He actually gets off the donkey, looks around, and then leaves town. He just walks out, and that's Sunday. And he leaves back and goes back to his home uh, where he's staying, at Lazarus' home. And then on Monday, Jesus came back into Jerusalem. This time, we looked at this last week, he had a little chip on his shoulder when he came. And this time, he was angry. He was angry by what he had seen the day before in the temple. And so he enters Jerusalem with a purpose. And on that day, on the way to the temple, he curses a fig tree because it reminded him of so many people that were acting one way and really being something else. And he goes in, and as he gets to the temple, he begins to interrupt the business of the temple, and he starts overthrowing tables of the money changers, of those selling lambs and pigeons, 
and he won't let people conduct the business of the temple because they had been missing out on the true business of the temple of drawing people back to God. He was upset that they had turned his, the temple, his father's house, into a den of robbers. And so they do this most of the day, and then after that, they leave and go back to the house that they're staying at again. And now we pick up the story again, and it's Tuesday. And Jesus' disciples are heading back into the temple a third time. But this time, as he's walking into the temple, it says the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders confronted him. All right, you can, maybe you can imagine why. All right, somebody at this point had like come down and you thought, wow, this guy's about to take over. Like the crowds are cheering this guy on. He could kick us out and take over today if he wanted to, but he didn't. Then he comes in the next day, trashes the temple, throws everything into chaos, and then leaves again. Now he's coming in day three and they're like, what's he going to do this time? We're going to stop him in his tracks and figure out what's going to happen. They didn't want Jesus to put on another show. They were going to flex their religious muscles and show Jesus who's boss and expose him for what he really was, just some lowly carpenter from a backwoods area of Galilee, and he had no authority in the temple. They have a plan for this day. And what they're going to do is they're going to send wave after wave of religious and philosophical attack toward Jesus. Their most respected spiritual leaders will confront him. Their most pious teachers will try to rebuke Jesus. Their most cunning lawyers will debate with him. And their most passionate followers will try to overwhelm Jesus. This is the day Jesus has in store for him as we pick up the scripture story here. And I want to start with one verse, two verses from the previous chapter in Mark chapter 11 that set this up. So look at this. Mark chapter 11, verse starting in verse 28. It says, They came again to Jerusalem, talking about Jesus and his disciples. And he was walking into the temple. The chief priests, scribes, and elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to do them? They're basically saying, Who who do you think you are? Coming in here and turning the tables over, acting like you're the king. Who do you think you are? This is the launching point for every attack that is going to be leveled at Jesus this day. And it is actually the core of every attack that ever comes Jesus' way. Jesus, who do you think you are? What gives you the right to do these things, to say these things, to tell us what to do? Why do you think you always have to know what's right and wrong? Why do you always get to be the one in charge and not me? I think if we're honest with our life, if we've been a follower of Christ for any length of time, we've had those same questions. We've struggled with those same thoughts. Jesus why do you get to tell me what's right and wrong? Why, why don't I get what I want sometimes? Why do you get to be the one in charge? Who made you God? I mean, I, I've had this conversation with my kids before when they're like growing up and they're like, you know, Dad, I don't want to do that. I was like, too bad. You know, why do I have to do this, Dad? And it's, I used a term that I said I would never use growing up with my, when my parents used it on me. And it's because I said so, right? That is the best tool of a parent, isn't it? I mean, when you, if you don't have kids yet, like that is secret weapon that you get to pull out and be like, because I said so. Like, and uh, you just get to use that beautiful sentence and they're like, ah, and they get frustrated, but then they have to go do it. Or at least you hope they do. But the, uh, the idea is this. This is what we do sometimes. We question authority. And we've questioned the authority of Jesus before. 
And the goal of these men on that day and the goal of us when we do this is we're actually trying to usually find a way to diminish God and elevate ourselves. How do we diminish the view of God and elevate the view of ourselves? And that's an actual tactic of an enemy, an enemy of Jesus, not an ally. So let's look at these encounters and see what we can learn this morning. Mark 12, 1 through 9, starts off with Jesus responding to this question with a parable. In verse 1, it says that he began to speak to them, the chief priest, in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and he built a tower and he leased it to the tenants and then he went into another country. When the season came, they're talking about the harvest, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, not even all the fruit, just a portion of it. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And then he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, so they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. For he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants, and give the vineyard to the others. This isn't a nice, happy-go-lucky little parable here. This isn't like the parable of the mustard seed. Oh, just have faith, and you can move mountains. This is not even the parable of like the prodigal son. It's got a happy ending. It's these idiot tenants who won't pay their portion that they agreed to the landlord, even though he keeps asking, and he eventually sends his most prized possession, and they kill him and throw him out and try to take over. And it says the... The, the landlord's going to come and destroy them, going to kick them out and put somebody else in. This parable is a direct response to the question the chief priest asked about Jesus' authority. To understand this response, you have to understand who these priests were. These priests had a unique role given to them by God in the Old Testament. They were the ones with task, listen to this, with continually reminding the people of Israel about the goodness and graciousness of God. That was their task, to remind the people of Israel about the goodness and the graciousness of God. It was their God to keep people focused on God instead of themselves, because God is the source of our hope. But what had happened is over the centuries, something went very different. Instead of keeping God at the central point of this story, they had pushed him aside and replaced God as the protagonist and placed themselves as the leading actors in the story. And they were what I would call, and one of the first texts of being an enemy, is they were presumptuous. These priests were presumptuous. Presumptuous here means that they overstepped their bounds. They took liberties that you're not supposed to take. It's elevating yourself to an unearned and unreasonable level of importance or position. This is the first enemy of the gospel, replacing Jesus with a stand-in. You ever gone to a Broadway show? And like you're excited about it and then you get there and there's that little slip of paper in there and you're like, please don't be one of the good ones. Like, please like just be like the sixth dancer is replaced by, you know, and then it's like, no, alpha buzzer. And you're like, no, I came to see this. And there's like this disappointment of like you're playing this day. I, I remember when Hamilton was going out and I had friends like coming to see Hamilton uh, when I forgot his name all of a sudden. Thank you. When he was like the lead and guess what? It was a day that he was not, like, and 
I mean, they couldn't trade their tickets into there. They're like, our tickets are worthless at this point. And it's, we, but we do this when we presume to be more, when we try to take God's place, we are just a stand in for the almighty God. And we do not measure up. Jesus uses this parable to remind them that the place that they hold was not earned by them. It was given to them by God. He reminded them that any influence they had was not based on their works, but instead on the greatness of God. He reminded them that even though God had been gracious and set them apart and created a unique role for them, they were now abusing that role and dishonoring God with their deeds. How did they get here? How did these guys get here? How did these priests get to this point? But more importantly, how did we get to this point of making ourselves the central figure of God's story, of putting ourselves, writing ourselves into the script, even when we weren't supposed to be there? How do we get to the point where we presume to be more than we really are? How do we get to the point where even when we say we're working to make the gospel of Jesus known to others, in reality, in our hearts, we're working to elevate the perceptions that people have about me and what I am doing. How do we allow the deep-seated arrogance and pride cause us to put Jesus off the stage and think that we deserve to step into the spotlight? Because that's what these priests had done. I think it boils down to one simple but disastrous shift in our lives. And it's this, when we exchange stewardship for ownership. When we exchange stewardship for ownership. This is what Jesus described in this parable. These tenants on the farm had forgotten that it wasn't their farm. They had forgotten that before the owner prepped the land and provided the materials, they had nothing. That they had only taken possession of the farm. That they had, they had now taken credit for everything that had been done for them. They had forgotten that they were simply stewards of this farm and not the owner of it. And this caused them to become so presumptuous that it turned them into enemies of God. I'm glad we don't do this. I'm glad we never forget where our blessings come from. Or that we don't sometimes take our pride and our arrogance and say, look at what I am doing for God. Look at what I'm accomplishing. Or look at what is ahead of me. People, if you will just look at me, you might get a glimpse of God. I mean, we, we live this way sometimes and how does this switch happen? And I think it happens in a few ways. The first thing we do is this. We forget anything of meaning that happened before I got involved. We just assume, like, everything that happened before I got here was, like, meaningless. Everything from when Patrick showed up is what's true meaning, right? I mean, we just have this idea in our life. We act like we are the only ones that have any good ideas, that everything in the past was just a setup for my moment, and we may honor the past work of God and others in our lives with our words. Yeah, 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 I appreciate everything that everybody did for me. But the truth is our hearts are empty of true gratitude and respect because we think the story's about us. We become the central figure and we become presumptuous. The second thing we do is this, is then when we forsake those that added value to us in the past because we begin to view them as a threat to our future. You see, the priest... They didn't even recognize the Son of God in front of them. They viewed him as a threat. They didn't say, this is the man who has showed up to the thing that we have been longing for, waiting for, to be, it is here. They were worried about their place. And they viewed him as a threat. 
we stop seeing God and others as a compliment to us and we start to view them as a competition to us. And we start to think that I am more special and unique than anyone else. The third thing we do is this, is we focus only on what value I have added or what can add value to me. We only focus on the value, the things that add value to me or that I can add value to. We elevate our own goals and accomplishments. Maybe we do this in our work environments. Maybe we do it even in friendships and our family. And we just create this unhealthy, never intended competition in our lives where it's all about me. And all you become is a tool to elevate my dreams and my vision. We get this idea that we are the centerpiece of God's story. And that's never where God intended you to stand. And you see here, the key idea is this, is that we want to have all the privileges without paying the price. We want to have all the privileges of that vineyard, that beautiful vineyard, and we want to keep all the profits. We don't want to pay the price of actually buying the land, building the, the fence, buying the seed, doing all the things that cause it to be where it was when we stepped into it. God wants us to understand that it is so easy. And Jesus is reminding us here to be careful not to become presumptuous. These priests had pushed God out of the spotlight, stepped into it themselves. And they had created their own salvation for man that was really away from the salvation of God. I've got like six other pages of notes here. We're not going to get through them today. And PJ's looking at me like, thank you. He's like, because he knows my notes up there. So what we're going to do is instead of pushing through this, and just wrap, we're going to push the second part of this to next week. Because I think these teachings are so important to help us understand how quickly we can become an enemy of God and not even realize it. So the question I want to end with you this morning is simply this. Would you consider to begin trading your religious hangups for true faith in Jesus. Because that's what these are. These things that cause us to be enemies, they're religious hangups. They're, I have to make myself more important so that people will think more about me so that maybe one day they'll think something about God. That's not the way it works. God says, push people toward me. Clear yourself out of the way. Stop, stop presuming to be more than you are. And would you trade your religious hangups for a true faith in Jesus Christ. And as we continue to study this, we're going to see that what we have to do is trade all of these things for one simple thing, and it's true faith. And next week we'll see how to do that. Will you bow your head and close your eyes with me? God, as we just stop this morning for a moment and uh, think about this one parable, this one truth that just got it penetrated my heart God it uh it convicted me deeply of times that I let my arrogance and pride put myself center stage to think that this story this journey this faith is about me and not you God would you rip away our presumptive natures this morning Would you not allow us to try to do things to 
cause you to diminish and to elevate ourselves and to become enemies of you. Would you instead let us set those things aside, grab hold of faith in you, and to stop being enemy of your kingdom and start becoming an ally of your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.